Okay, we're going to get started. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Helix Center. Before I introduce uh, today's uh, participants, let me tell you about a couple of uh, roundtables that are coming up. On Saturday, March 12th, the Meditative State with research psychologists Sarah Lazar, Peter Melanowski, and Yi Young Tang, and pastoral care leader Koshin Paley Ellison, and psychoanalyst Morgan Stebbins. I don't think I'm. Then on Saturday, March 26th, Understanding Genius Part 2 Women, with historians Joyce Chaplin, Kathleen Keat, and Darren McMahon, anthropologist Susan Seymour, and poet and visual artist Anne Marie Levine, who, as Helix Executive Committee member, also organized that roundtable. Now, for today, Genes, Computers, and Medicine, James Dahlman, Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech. Francis Lee, Mortimer D. Sackler Professor and Vice Chair for Research, Department of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College, Karen Maschke, Research Scholar at the Hastings Center, and Hans Guido Wendel, Principal Investigator at the Cancer Genetics Laboratory at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Okay, we'll begin. So what's the latest in Genetics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really pleased that you started off uh, with a question I can answer quickly. Um, <laughs> so from my perspective as somebody who does uh, genetic therapies, uh, who looks into the future and sees medicines where we target the genome, uh, I think there's a, a revolution occurring in biology where with different types of new small molecules or, excuse me, uh, DNAs or RNAs, we can actually go for the first time uh, and effectively manipulate the genome the, the way that we would like to. So in genetics, one of the many uh, revolutions is this ability to actually go in and, and edit the genome as we would like or manipulate the genome and see what, uh, what that can do therapeutically and scientifically. That's one of the advances in genetics, I would say. If you had to take a a guess, where would be the first clinical application of this, of this type of new wave of gene editing? It's a difficult question. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd answer it by outlining sort of the, yeah. one of the biggest hurdles yeah. to implementing the, yes. the gene editing therapies, which is the ability to safely deliver yeah. uh, the, the new genetic drugs where you want to deliver them. As you might imagine, if, if you're going to go in and, and create uh, a targeted therapy, you want to make sure it's going to the right spot in the body. Uh, for that reason, um, I would venture a guess and say that anywhere where you can administer the genetic medicine locally, so for instance your eye, you can literally spray it into your eye. Um, uh, you can uh, take cells out of the body, like your immune cells, and edit them and then put them back in, so immune cells, and then um, perhaps also the liver, which is uh, an organ that is a little easier to target drugs to than, than other organs. Okay. So just as, since I'm sort of a layman of this gene editing, so what's the difference between this and the revolution I had recalled in the 1990s with gene therapy? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> again, it, it's tricky. Um, the revolution in gene therapy is really actually bearing some interesting therapeutic fruit right now. Yeah. So. Again, uh, back, in, back in the 90s, there were these advances where people started saying, all right, we're going to actually start um, taking patients where you know, they're not able to produce a particular gene. Exactly. 
and then we're going to put that gene in the patient and, and yeah. you know, cure the patient in, in some way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, in sort of the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a few um, hurdles and uh, events that set the field back. But now, because the delivery of some of these genetic therapies has become much more safe, um, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing a change. And we're actually seeing really impressive clinical data come out uh, with, with gene therapies that were originally thought of in, you know, in the 80s yeah. and 90s. So I'm going to interject, because one of the setbacks was, was actually a death. Yes, yeah, right. Well, actually, there were two deaths. That's right. Um, that had to do with research ethics issues. Yeah. And um, with possibly one exception, there's no FDA-approved gene therapy at this time. There's a, maybe more than one. Or, yeah, yeah there's so, one in Europe. Yeah, but in the United States, yeah. as yet. So I'm not, I'm, I'm just sort of, as a part of the revolutionary language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. The revolution hasn't happened yet. And there was a lot of hype. That's right. And um, some people wonder if there's the same kind of hype with gene editing, you know, with, and, and also potential harms because of the exuberance mm -hmm. that people are going into with this the same way they did with gene therapies. Yeah. I not mean, to put you on the spot because you're not the only person, but. Yeah, yeah no, of course. <laughs> and, and, and I should clarify that when I say, you know, revolution, I'm not specifically only referring to uh, gene editing technologies. Right. I'm also referring to anti-sense technologies and, yeah. and RNAi, um, which, you know, small interfering siRNA, or excuse me, small interfering RNAs or siRNAs. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that there is a, a risk for overhyping new technologies, just like uh, with any other technology that has ever been, you know, reported. Um, but I think, generally speaking, it is a relatively safe uh, statement to make when we say that maybe in 20 years, different classes of medicine based on either small RNAs or antisense will have a much larger impact in the clinic than certainly they will now. So. Um, and I think that's primarily because the delivery is going to continue to improve. So do the clinicians, are you seeing that in the clinical world, that you see this in your path? I have not seen a patient in 15 years. I'm not really <laughs> calling myself a clinician anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm my only patient. If I, I have hay fever, that's about it. Um, I don't know. I think much of the technology has a long way to go before it's a clinical right. reality. Uh, so no doubt it, it's cool new research tools that we can use to learn a lot about how cells work, how cell biology works, and what genes do, and what happens if you change them, and so on. I think the, the practical applications are very limited, right? At the moment, you can, maybe the most promising he mentioned is that you can isolate, you know, immune cells, yeah. pull them out of your body, modify them, and put them back, and suddenly these cells have learned to target a leukemia. And that works sometimes, right? It's not risk-free, but if you don't have a choice, then at the moment, hey, there's a, new, there's a new thing on the horizon, right? So that's a reality. If you open a newspaper, you're going to find much more speculative things of how we're going to engineer, you know, new super athletes, or we'll make, you know, smarter children. Or we'll, <laughs> but all, all these things, I, I think, are not a reality. And, and I mean, but obviously, if you... If you think that they might be, then that has a lot of ethical implications that you, know, you have to think about. I'm going to hold this because I'm having problems with the slide. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out, and the reason for raising that question is, a lot of the science that does get hyped in the media is really what we might call discovery science. I mean, yeah. you're, you're in the lab, and you're building a body of work, and you're training a body of scientists to continue to build on 
that work. And science is a very incremental process, which often is two steps forward, eight steps back, <laughs> and maybe even more than eight steps back. And cleaning up mistakes and errors and oversights and just not even thinking about certain things that you thought might happen or didn't happen. Um, and yet in the media, when we talk about technologies and we hear all these issues about brain technologies and computer interfaces and genes, gene therapy, gene slicing, gene editing, um, there's an intermediate point, and that's where I sit, which is the research ethics point. You don't just come up with a discovery in the lab and then say, let's take it across the street over to Well Cornell or to um, take it over to Sloan Kettering and let's use it. There's another whole step that can take anywhere from 10 to 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, I, I, when you were speaking, I was just thinking about, there were, about a month ago, there was this amazing article that was in both in Washington Post and New York Times that we had now made a quantum leap in our understanding of schizophrenia, that they had been able to find an immune gene, an MHC gene, that was a, one of the largest hits in the genome-wide association studies. And as you read the article, you just were, and it was elegant, it was, the, the genetics were elegant, the mouse model that they where they found a complement gene that was somehow related to this, that would actually prune spines and neurons. And then ultimately, when you read the fine print, they said that this gene, this MHC complex gene, um, possibly explains um, 0.25% of the risk factor for, for schizophrenia. So that from a clinical point of view, it has almost no worth. <laughs> you know, that it would possibly help us understand something about the pathophysiology for that 0.25% of people on the planet Earth who have this uh, ver genetic variation. But for the rest of the people, it would have no effect. So I, the way I think about it is that the, in terms of the genetic revolution, I think of it in terms of either diagnosis, pathophysiology, or um, some type of intermediate phenotype that we could use to possibly understand things. And I, I would put this in the sort of the pathophysiology that we could study, make it, as you said, it's a discovery science, that possibly that there is some neuroimmune component to schizophrenia in 0.2% of the population, that increases your risk by 0.25%, but by itself would not cause schizophrenia by by no means at all. So it's a, and I think this is the kind of things that the media does, which actually does a disservice to our field, because psychiatry in particular has had many false starts. I, I was at a talk recently where the Nobel Prize was given for frontal lobotomies, and it's absolutely clear that we do not understand many things, and that when these types of articles come out, they actually, um, now people think that we're, we're probably, as you said, one step closer, probably eight steps back in terms of understanding this. So. And that makes me, you know, wonder, so from the, from the bioethics perspective, this is something I think that many fields uh, struggle with. You know, how do you present your science uh, to the public and how do you uh, tone down uh, some of the popular press reports? So when you guys look at the bioethics, um, do you guys ever consider questions like these? Oh, you know, how oh, do we? It's, yes, it's been written about a lot. Yeah, uh, and, and and unfortunately, when I'm at sessions having these conversations, the scientists end up being in the hot seat because we're asking you, well, is this really going to happen in 10 years or 15 years? Um, part of it's a media problem, and part of it is also, I think, um, the nature of our culture that institutions are 
in a position of competing because they want the best and the brightest and they want the NIH money and they want the venture capital money and they want the patents and they want, you know, and so they're part of the mix of um, promoting, I wouldn't say hype, but promoting their, their work and their people. And the media then takes those stories and translates it in ways. And then you see movies like The Matrix and you see other movies where this gets put into the, into the popular culture in ways that the, you know, the scientists and his or her team who are working in the lab day after day after day, you know, you know mm -hmm. um, wonder. And yet in the pop popular discourse, we have these conversations about different human brains, different human organs. We can fix them in the lab. We can do petri dish organs and put them in humans and they'll live forever. And, it's not really close to reality. Yet it becomes a part of the public discourse. And then it becomes a part of the public fear too, which can often hinder science going forward. Yeah, I would, I would also contend that it, it, it does a disservice because it sets expectations you know, pretty high. And it, as you said, I think it's a really nice way of stating it. Science is really two steps forward and, and eight steps backwards. I mean, it, it takes a lot of effort to make even an incremental change and I think when we you know when you read a popular press report about you know we're going to create a new organ and you know now you're going to be able to have new kidneys and new lungs and new whatever all the time I think um, if that's what's what's sort of understood in uh, in the popular media that's what people are going to read and that's how they're going to think about science and that, that as you said that's not at all at all how it works it takes a really long time and there are a lot of failures before you get any kind of even mild success. But yeah, when, oh, go ahead. But when you have a, a hypothesis that you have verified, like the gene editing, that has been done, so what causes the eight steps back? <clears throat> if you know how to do the gene editing and you know what to apply it to, and I think what Gil was saying, you can modify the immune system of the person. So what causes the steps back? I don't know. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd defer to the people closer to the clinic than I am on, on that. I would defer to, I think the, the success stories have mainly been in cancer. So I would ask you, like, what would you think would be, because this is where, the, where you actually do have genetic biomarkers that inform diagnosis and treatment. The success stories, yeah, no, there, there are plenty. And I think it's not just therapeutic, so, and it's not just gene editing, and it's not science fiction. There's real life things that have improved light years yeah. since I treated my last patient. Exactly. Now, if you come to a major cancer center, your cancer is going to be sequenced, the whole genome of the thing. Previously, we didn't have that. Now you can sequence the whole thing. You can find what is the mutation that drives this disease. And there is a chance you might have a drug specifically for that mutation. For some patients that benefit directly from this, that's a major breakthrough, right? Suddenly you don't get, you know, the, the, the standard therapy, but you get something that is essentially tailor-made for, for your disease. And I think that's, that's where we are now, and probably with new drugs, and new, it'll go further, right? So I think there is a real breakthrough here that now we can sequence a whole tumor. Previously, how did you diagnose a tumor? You look at it under a microscope, and you say, well, this kind of looks like, you know, figure 7B in, in the textbook, and therefore it has to be that 
tumor and we usually treat them with drug B and that kind of works. And now you have the whole genome and you, you can find specific sensitivity. So on the diagnostic side, I think there's like a real breakthrough. That's just sequencing, analyzing, being able to do this, which maybe 20 years ago was like flying to the moon. It was impossible, right? You couldn't do it. You would count individual nucleotides. Now you sequence everything. So that's a major break. And I think for, for us as a research group, the, um, the next major advance is that we can use these genetic tools like CRISPR, like gene editing, and RNAi and RNA interference and so on, as research tools to ask in, in a leukemia or in a cancer, what would happen if we take away any of the genes in this cancer? Which ones can't they tolerate to lose? What are they really sensitive to? Um, and what of these things may be already something that we can target with a drug that we have today? Or maybe tell the pharmaceutical company and say, look, we, we keep finding this gene and we think that these liver cancers, they really, they really need this, this gene. Mm. Can you help us make a drug? And I think that's sort of the, the next research level that what these technologies are practically immediately useful for. Um, I think those, for, for me at the moment, are the biggest sort of advances that we, we have there. Now, <coughs> along those lines, um, I'm stepping outside my field of expertise here a little bit because yeah. I, I do therapeutics, but um, one of the things that's most interesting to me is, is using this idea of genomics and, and looking for mutations early on in a patient sample, because I know that, um, at least my understanding is that in the clinic, especially with, with cancer, one of the biggest limitations is, is being able to find out that you have the disease early. And if you catch it early, then you have a much better shot of, of surviving or being treated successfully. So is it true or is it realistic that, again, um, not to put everybody on the spot, but you know, in a reasonable amount of time that we'll have technologies available where you can you know, when you get your annual checkup, you can take a blood sample and say, oh, there's something going on here. This this looks kind of wonky, and we need to take in to get a CT scan or, and uh, look for early signs that way using genetics. Yeah, so that's a, that's a difficult... I, I have an echo, right? Um, I think that's, that's very attractive, right? Being able yeah. to pull blood and say, well, we're going to find, you know, a specific marker or a specific, specific cell that has a specific mutation, and therefore we know that you have pancreatic cancer. Um, the, that has, has a lot of difficulties to this, and they're not just technical. So technically it's all possible. You can pull blood and you can sequence it and you can analyze and you can find things. Um, but I think there are practical issues here. So let's say you find a mutation in your blood, a translocation, mm. T1418, it occurs in lymphomas. Well, it turns out 50% of healthy people, you can find it. Yeah. So what are you going to do with that? I mean, take 50% of the population and roll them through a CAT scan, and nobody's going to pay for that. It's impossible, mm. right? Um, so there isn't the, the sort of level of specificity to it yet that you can say, well, we, we really have the tools to do it. I think many of these diagnostic test. They're very useful in following up. So you have diagnosed someone with a cancer and you treat it and you know this marker was at a certain level 
and you get treated and it disappears, you know, well, you did the right thing. If it comes back, you know, well, we need to have another look. Um, so um, th there are issues about, you know, specificity and about the cost associated. All this was discussed, and it, it's not just even genomics or genetic tools. All this was discussed with PSA recently, right? Which, oh. I mean, this is a market that's been around for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. It's a protein marker you can measure in the blood, and it indicates um, whether your prostate is happy or not happy, basically. It also goes very high in prostate cancer. Um, but if you just screen the population for high levels of PSA, you're going to end up doing a lot of biopsies, and not everyone likes to have a needle stuck in their prostate. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it does cost a lot of money. So th there are you know, practical problems mm -hmm. of following through with these uh, tests. Oh, I'm also stepping out of my comfort area, but I, I, one of my colleagues is a geneticist, and he said that what he's now working on, he's at, he's at Hudson Alpha in um, Alabama, is that, so what they're doing to study breast cancer, for example, so I'm, so I'm a psychiatrist, so this is obviously outside of me, is that they're actually isolating all the immune cells in the, in the blood and they're sequencing them, because obviously your immune profile by genetics is different, because you're, you're generating different antibodies, and they'll notice that they get a completely different profile. It's not a significant, it's not a single gene, it's just a different genetic profile bioinformatically, and then after treatment, your, your immune system looks different on, the, on this genetic profile. Was he just making this up, or have you heard of this? Or <laughs> I was just I haven't heard of it. <laughs> you know, I had a similar idea a while ago. I thought, you know, this would be fun, fun thing to do with people who are Im who are exposed to a lot of pathogens. Yeah. So, you know, bacteria or something. So you just take everyone who takes the subway in New York and compare them to people who don't take the yeah, subway. Exactly. You're going to get a completely different yes, exactly. representation of yeah. the immune system, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah. Uh, again, I don't know how, yeah. how specific this is. I'm not familiar yeah. with the specific okay. research he's yeah. doing. Um, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Your comment was what I was going to, actually, it was a good comment, because that's what I was going to say over here was, again, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiastic skeptic, yeah. um, or a skeptical enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, biomarkers are one whole category of skepticism in some ways, and if we just look at genetics and look at a genetic biomarker and take out the environment and the exposures of people and the epigenetics issues, we may not have the whole story. So there's this much more complex picture uh, that we don't hear about in the media and that we don't even hear about in cancer genomics, which is, as you're absolutely right, has had phenomenal improvements and, and spectacular advances in terms of being able to sequence a cancer genome. On the other hand, you have a vast amounts of information that physicians and geneticists know nothing about. They don't really understand how they interact with each other. They don't understand how environmental factors interact. And even within um, categories of ancestry, uh, age, you know, uh, when, when the disease was actually caught in that, in that sense, there are a lot of factors that don't necessarily mean there's going to be a, a drug for that specific patient at that specific time or that editing some piece mm -hmm. of the genome is actually going to help and may help that patient, but not another one who you would think looks just like that patient in terms of biophysical characteristics. So again, it's a lot more complex, and, the, and my skepticism comes from the precision med medicine, personalized medicine hype in some sense, that 
We're just going to be able in, to in find fact, just. You want the opposite. You don't want personalized. You want something that works for everyone. Yeah. Ideally. Exactly. Who wants exactly. personalized? You want something that works, right? So, I mean. Uh, that was the first cancer war, right. that it's going to work yeah. for everybody. Yeah. We're going to yeah. find the drug, right. yeah. and um, we're going to use powerful chemotherapeutic drugs for lots of people, yeah. and we're going to find the right combination, and it's going to work for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the other thing I like to point out, though, is when we think about precision medicine or we think about personalized medicine, um, I like to sort of split diseases when I think about them into basically cancer and, and everything else. Right. <laughs> because when I look at, you know, when I try to design something that will deliver a drug to a tumor, uh, I get a little nervous because the tumor thinks and will fight back against whatever you're delivering. So you'll, you know, deliver a drug and you know, if you kill, if you have like the best drug delivery in the world and you have a, a, a tumor that for easy numbers has 100 cells in it and you get 99 of those cells, that one little surviving cell is now smarter and won't respond to that therapy later on. I don't know many other diseases that, that evolve so rapidly and in, you know, in that way. So a lot of times when, when we talk about personalized medicine, we automatically sort of default to cancer. And I don't, again, this is outside of my expertise, but I, I'm a little less skeptical that precision medicine will work for diseases outside of the cancer field. Maybe, maybe we'll get lucky and we'll find something for athro or, or we'll get something for some other ischemic heart disease or something mm -hmm. like this, something that isn't you know, so aggressively fighting against you. So I, th I think that's important to note is that, and, and I, actually I don't know if that's the case in, in neuropsychiatric disease or not, because that's, that's complicated for a different reason, is that, is that yes, fair to say? It, it's very complicated. Well, first of all, the brain's very complicated. Course, and we yeah. don't, but I would have to say what, uh, just in my sort of like last five years of research, is that I never understood particularly well, even though I'm, I was trained by Dr. Nersessian and others in psychiatry, is that almost every psychiatric disorder emerges between the transition from childhood to adolescence to late adolescence. So the entire disease progresses, and then you live for the rest of your life with this. So when you actually start treating them, you're actually pe seeing people that have had this disease for a while. And the idea is that we might have had to treat them at that moment when it first started because the and it and what we're now realizing is that the adolescent or child brain is very different so whatever d drugs that we now have in our current armamentarium ha is not really set or the therapies we have are set for what we are treating. So it's actually quite a moving target. You have a disease that began in essentially in an immature developing brain, and you are treating it based on, an, on a completely different roadmap later on. So it's very hard to design particular, both behavioral or molecular therapies based on that. Ultimately, you would want to treat it when you, the symptoms first emerge, but it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to do clinical trials in children and adolescents, just, you know, which is probably when what we'll ultimately find, if I had to make a prediction 20 years from now, we'll realize that we'll have to, that's when you treat it. Because you, at, it ultimately, 10 years, if you let a disease, like go, chronic disease go on for 10 years, it's just not going to be hard. I think that's sort of the lesson we're learning in the field of Alzheimer's disease, that actually you need to actually treat them when they first have their cognitive impairments emerging. That, and the reason why almost every clinical trial has failed is because every, they're treating them at, 
age of 60 and above. When Let me ask in, in your field. Uh, yeah, it's a kind. Did, did genetic research yeah. come up with new targets, new ways of treating Something can can you like give? I mean, I mean, for cancers, I, I think we yeah. can put a finger on a few things that we have new drugs and we know they target certain mutations and that's how they yeah. work. In in psychiatry and neurological diseases, has there been? Well, first of all, I would say that there's been a great revolution in studying the fact that both autism and schizophrenia they. There have just been massive advances in genome sequencing. And for example, there was a, the, 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 the study of the MHC gene was based on the capacity of large consortiums to get essentially over 100,000 schizophrenic patients' entire genome sequenced. And there you can then get genome-wide significant hits. The problem that they ultimately found was, was that it explains so little of the, of the very, it, each of these genes don't explain much. What's, what's most befuddling for autism is that there is, after 10 years, what they realized is that almost every mutation in autism is essentially rare. And, when, and what they said in the last five years, what they realized is the word rare actually means rare. So that ultimately, there is not going to be a common biomarker or diagnostic tool. And every autism spectrum disorder patient is going to probably be unique because it's sort of these spontaneous deletions and mutations and and it's so in that sense that for that one patient if they found one in interesting gene that will help that one patient but that's about it the the hope is is that in the future that there will be common mutations, variants that, variants that have been found that can be used because the genome is filled with people that have these genetic variants in these special plasticity genes that my lab actually studies. Um, and the idea is that we could use this to at least guide something. It's still very early days of whether or not this will happen, but that's the idea, that, that there would be some common genetic variation that could be used to at least, um, but the bar is so low in but you think of these, these are mutations that you think of as inherited, so that's yes, exactly. in every cell in your body, basically, right? So I think it's very different from the idea we think about cancers arising, where, you know, most cancer genes are normal in, in every other cell, but we think really there's mutations that occur in one cell somewhere that triggers a cascade of further yeah changes that ultimately lead yeah. to, to the tumor. Yeah. But I think in, in, in your field, you, you think of the genetics as, as a predisposing thing exactly. that will make you more sensitive to environment, exactly. to stresses, to... Early life traumas or something. Right, like that. whatever exactly. that yeah. actually is. Right? So it's a, you probably don't think of it uh, then as much as a genetic disease. I mean, we think of cancer as a genetic disease, right? It basically, there is yeah. a cell that gets irradiated, yeah. <laughs> something goes wrong and, yes. and then the things yeah. happen. But, um, but to what extent do you think psychiatric diseases are genetic? They, they, but they're absolutely, they have to be genetic because as an ex this is just an example, uh, because my lab also studies obsessive compulsive disorder. If you have an identical twin, there's a 65% chance that identical twin will have obsessive compulsive disorder. So something is definitely being transmitted. And the same with schizophrenia is almost that high, or bipolar disorder. So these are incredibly heritable disorders. And
And what, what the field has been dealing with is what we call the missing heritability. There's something, we're, something massive, some large elephant we're missing. <laughs> and you can imagine... What do you mean by missing? What, what is because missing? Because not heritability? all the genome-wide association studies have not found a gene that can be right. transmitted that is in identical twins even. People, people are very smart now. They're doing twin studies and family-based studies with large pedigrees to try to find even sort of rare genetic, and they've not been able to find. And there have been so many false starts. That's what, why I'm being very, people, they, they, we, they thought they found some before, they named them schizophrenia genes, and now they're sort of discredited. So how does the field reconcile, because that, that's, how does the field reconcile that? Because you, know, you might say, okay, well then we're just going to sequence more people, yeah. to which the counter argument could be made, well, if it's really that ubiquitous, then you shouldn't have to sequence very many people at all. You should be able to pick it up. Or so, are they saying, well, you know, it's going to be something new. It's the three-dimensional structure of the genome, which we don't know how to characterize, or some other sort of currently black box mechanism. No, I think the psychiatry, at least in the psych neuropsychiatry field, we've, we've come to terms with the fact that we actually don't know how to diagnose our patients very well. We use a criteria called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is essentially a syndromic manual. It, there's no quantitative biomarker. You have a histology test, or you have a you have blood pressure even to to measure hypertension. I was at a wonderful Grand Rounds at Cornell the other day where Kathleen Marikangas, a very talented human geneticist, had done some, a very fascinating study. She took bipolar patients and gave them essentially Fitbits and smartwatches to walk around. And, and what she noticed that that what every bipolar patient had was not what we think of as a DSM-5, racing thoughts, whatever, mania or hypomania. They actually, she noticed that they, she could predict when, um, when they would become functionally uh, ill mm. is by the fact that they traveled more within the city or within their town. So it was just physical activity, that there are certain aspects of the way we diagnose patients that don't actually capture the disorder. As an example, another example, if, you, if someone is given a diagnosis of major depression, you, are, you can either eat too much, eat too little, sleep too much, sleep too little, and actually get the same disorder. So essentially you're studying the equivalent of 1940s cough or some or uh, bad X-ray, lung X-ray. You're not study so it's not surprising that all the genome-wide association studies have failed. I've always advocated that there are certain things in psychiatry which are incredibly um, robust. Like if you have a panic attack, no one will say there's no. It, it looks every, no one will disagree that that was a panic attack. Or if you wash your hands ten times a day, no one will disagree that that is a repetitive behavior. And if your hands are chapped, then you know you have a disorder. So you need to study what we call phenotypic extremes. Or if you have a if you have a disorder of type of depression where you start hallucinating, you're now studying a very specific type of depression, a subtype that is extreme in some sense. The and I think that's where the field is moving, that we have failed, and, it, and this was, a, 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 this was a, 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 a sort of an argument between the head of the APA and the head of NIMH a couple of years mm -hmm. ago that was played out in the New York Times where they disagreed about the di what, how to diagnose patients, and to my sense is uh, that the fact that there is even a discussion about how we even diagnose our patients tells us that, that we're still at a very early stage for this, you know. But 
I won't. I should not be so negative about psychiatry, just because. A new technology is going to help you there. Because I mean, it's a new imaging thing's going to help you. Are you know a lot of other medical diagnostics are based on you know imaging or measuring activities, you know EEGs. Or, but I mean, are those things providing criteria at all, or are they? I, well, I, I would say, I would even step back further and just say that the brain is complex. Like the the model. A genetic disorder in, in the brain is Huntington's disease. It's, it's autosomal dominant. You have one copy, you have the disorder, and it's, the genetics is just beautiful. If you have 70 repeats, you get different gradations of this phenotype, it's, and you now have a genetic test, you have great MR, whatever, uh, uh, CAT scanning to basically show you that the brain is shrink, certain areas of the brain are shrinking, um, and they've known this since the 1980s. And to this day, it is an incurable disorder. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason, only reason why it's decreasing in prevalence is because the genetic testing will allow people to decide that if you, if, if you have the gene, you will not have children or something. So this, is an, um, so this should have been like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of, of, of neurologic or psychiatric disorders. And just tells you that, and, and they've been trying to put in growth factors into the brain or somehow because they know exactly what circuit, they know that the striatum is degenerating. So it, even if we don't get to understand, you, even if you can't repair Huntington, the, the protein, you can at least pump it full of whatever growth factors to, and that has not actually worked at this point. Well, isn't yeah. that mm -hmm. where this CRISPR thing should yeah. be useful? So actually, I think this, <laughs> this proves your point yeah. uh, beautifully. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, earlier you said, you know, you're very skeptical and that we should, you know, tone down um, at times our, our exuberance for these new technologies. And I think this is a great demonstration uh, that, that you're correct. Um, we've known, as, as you've said, the genetics on Huntington's have been clear for a very long time since the original linkage studies and some of Dave Hausman's work and, and work by some really other great scientists. Um, it's pretty clear that, you know, in theory, if you could reduce the CAG repeats in that disease, that you could correct the phenotype in, in theory. And, and, um, and despite that fact, um, my field, this drug delivery therapeutics field, has not successfully uh, been able to deliver uh, a therapeutic that can do this, quote, very simple genetic task despite the fact that we've known exactly what we needed to do for 30 years. It also, to some extent, proves your point when you say, you know, the brain is complex. Um, when I look at the brain from a drug delivery perspective, yeah. I get extremely nervous because of that fact. You know, it, it's just a big, huge, complicated organ. Um, and it's hard to get stuff to, to go to the brain. Or I to mean, the right place in the brain. To the right place. Or, yeah, I would even argue, you know, it's hard to get... I don't want to speak too broadly or too in, in like an over colloquial terminology here, but I think about this very simply, which is that there's this thing that we're all aware of, the blood-brain barrier, um, which is basically the blood vessels in the brain uh, are very good at keeping stuff out of the brain, generally speaking. And so if you want to deliver a drug into the brain, it's really hard to do it because the body has evolved and designed itself to prevent things from getting into yeah. the brain. It's quite literally that simple. Yeah. It's hard to get drugs into the brain. Yeah. So even if we have clear genetics, uh, it's hard to make an impact, which again, like you said. Well, to second that with the imaging, I think the next big hype is going to be the brain imaging. It already is out there. You can see things that we could never see yeah. before. 
the and function the, of imaging. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But it has a, well, it's not a picture. That's the other myth. It's not a picture of somebody's brain. Yeah. It's a composite of a number of statistical and computerized Is this like the, um, fMRIs. Oh, FMRI, yeah. I think It's not a picture of my brain yeah. in, in the sense that people think of a picture. So there's already the media have misled in some ways. Um, but, you know, I think the next kind of potential hype is going to be brain imaging and, and Alzheimer's disease because, again, there's pretty good information about what's happening. Yeah. You can see the same thing happening in Alzheimer's patients and Parkinson's patients. And yet, just because one can actually show that doesn't mean there's going to be some kind of targeted delivery. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we keep seeing over and over again, you know, the next, I, I, have, I have articles that said in 10 years we're going to have drugs for Alzheimer's. You know, we had, we had those articles 15 years ago for gene therapy. We're mm -hmm. going to have gene therapy for these particular disorders in 10 years. It's um, an ethical problem what you do with, <laughs> what do, you, do you want to diagnose early a condition that you can't do anything about? Correct. I mean, and that was the whole that's the, the whole genetics information in terms of right. the biobanking and the, and the well, results. I mean, that's what I've been doing for well, ten years: yeah. is research so results. That, exactly. That's, <laughs> so that's super interesting, right? And this is I'm, I'm so curious to hear your, your, everybody's perspective on this. Um, yeah, we have this wave. I mean, total like tsunami of of genetic information available, and it's frankly difficult to interpret, even mm -hmm. for somebody who's you know you have a PhD in genetics, you can get spit in a tube and get your 23andMe profile back, and it's hard to interpret your own stuff. Um, so it's going to be difficult, and we're going to need scientists and uh, people who are trained specifically to take all this genetic information and talk to patients in a way that, that's practical. And I don't know how you do that. I mean, do you guys have any idea how to, how to do that? Well, the field is moving in that direction. When I started um, 13 years ago at the Hastings Center, I was on a project, an NIH-funded project on the um, hmm, genetics education and ethics or something to that effect was the title. And we talked about these issues about, you know, the human genome had just started to, to, project had just started to produce some data. So this was in the early 2000s. And, you know, the whole issue was, oh my God, we have all this information now and we're going to have all these breakthroughs. Well, then the scientists and the clinicians started saying, we have a lot of information that tells us nothing. We just have a lot of information. And even if we have information that shows something that might be close to helping us on a diagnosis, we have no treatments. Um, and then all the other issues about familial connections and, and heritability and paternity issues and all this came up. The field in medicine and genetics has moved, I would, in at least the last five years, quite a bit to trying to find um, ways for institutions and, and um, specialty groups to at least kind of have some kind of a consensus on what is the key information they want to actually look at and what do you actually know and to try to have that information filtered down to the clinical level, as opposed to everybody just has everything. So a lot of institutions, I'm sure at your institution, um, I know at the Mayo Clinic, I had done some work there. Um, at the larger professional society level, there are these groups now, these consortia, either regionally, institutionally, or across the field, of trying to find out you know, what are the key genetic variants that we need to be focused on in terms of clinical practice. Even if we can't do anything, is there enough information about something that we would want to at least ask patients if they want that information? And then try to find some way to deal with, even if you can't do anything with Huntington's, at least they yeah. know if they want to know. Then you come into the ethical issue of what if yeah. they don't want to know? Does a it, clinician it have it an obligation? So you've got the right to know issue and right, right not to know issue. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of the, the informed consent 
I, I remember as a medical student, uh, I had to consent a teenager for an appendectomy, taking mm -hmm. the appendix mm -hmm. out. And it was just really difficult to explain to him exactly what it involved and so on. This is just an appendix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about risk factors mm -hmm. that may by 2% or 5% or 17.3% alter your risk of something for which you... It's just, just very hard to see how you will... Um, well, and Even if you're educated in the field, how will you reach a conclusion, how, you will, how this affects your treatment and how you then tell this to a broader... And, it, and it's really critical to take into account um, how your description, you know, when the patient receives that information, it could affect their, even, even if medically their genetic code isn't going to really change the odds that they get a given disease. If you say, okay, you know, I'm, I, your risk for disease X has now increased by 15%, right? As a patient, I might go, oh my Lord, this is, that, that's scary to me. You know, I am at risk for disease X. However, the, the overall risk of getting that disease is like 1 in 10,000. Right. So now you're like 1.15 out of 10,000. Yeah. Statistically, nothing really has changed. Correct. Right? And, but that's, I know that even if I got that information, I would be like, oh, man, this is, you know. Most major diseases, though, even though they may be genetic components, and maybe even the science might get us to a point where you could be the next Nobel Prize winner for finding a targeted, mm. you know, pathway, um, most major diseases, we already know if you're at risk for it. You have family history, you have high blood pressure, you have certain markers in your blood for diabetes and for prostate cancer, you have scans imaging from mammography, CAT scans, MRIs. So the genetic information may not in and of itself change much already. And if you're talking about trying to prevent those diseases, we have tons of literature and studies showing that people are very, it's very, very hard to get people to change their Lifestyle. Eating, yeah. exercise, lifestyle habits, even when they have the information that their dad died at 45. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I wonder what, you know, from the, again, from the discovery science point, the discovery science is critically important. Mm -hmm. But from the clinical point, what we already know about patients and what we already learn in the clinic, you have a lot of information already. Yeah. Go into a new doctor, and the first thing you do is go down the list. What's your family history? Have you been in the hospital? Yeah. Have you had any operations? Have you had a stroke? Do you have diabetes? Yeah. You know, do you ever get dizzy? Do you ever have blurred All these things that you look at. It's not completely as redundant, but it, correct, it gives exactly. you Correct, exactly. But it gives you a, a lot of information impression already. If you did it very carefully. Correct, yeah. correct. Also, like, for example, one of my colleagues is a stroke specialist, and all he says is, is that if you control your blood pressure, that's probably the best thing to prevent stroke, Alzheimer's disease, cognitive impairment. But, you know, much more so than much later on. And if that would be probably, in, from a public health impact, that's probably much more important that if you just control your blood pressure, your chances of all these devastating neurologic disorders d d decrease exponentially. And yet it would be a lot easier if I can still eat the way I eat and get a gene chip or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some mechanism put into my brain. But it's not a sexy to say just get your <laughs> blood pressure checked correct, and, and yeah, decrease yeah. salt intake, right, right, which right. is actually what you're supposed to do. Right. Well, and, and the other thing I'll point out too is that so this is what the, it looks like right now but you know it, things change oh, and absolutely. it could be in 20 years they play this video back and everybody on the stage looks like a fool as a, as yeah. a I would actually statistically that's just yeah. probably going to be the case yeah. <laughs> this is why it's always better to stay keep a skeptical stance yeah that's right but you know things I mean things could change it could turn out that the you know precision medicine um didn't work out as, as much as we want to, or it could turn out that, you know, we have cures to three or four diseases that mm -hmm. we didn't think were on the table because in eight, eight years I from now... I think that's actually more likely. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, because the focus is on a siloed science 
That's focus. right. Focus, and yes, absolutely right. That's right. It's just impossible yeah. to predict yep. how these things evolve. Of, of a discovery. Mm -hmm. That's well, right. One of the areas that was promising for the gene editing were the kind of diseases that we know are inherited and we know that start early, like muscular dystrophy, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or sickle cell anemia. Or sickle yeah, cell anemia. Right. I thought those are areas where the promise was the greatest. Oh, yeah, that's right. So there are... Um, a number of disease, and I'm not an expert in this because it, we just work on the delivery, um, but there are a, a subset of biological diseases where, again, sort of akin to Huntington's, where the, the genetics and the biology is pretty clear. Um, as, a, as a broad statement, we all know here that most diseases are very complicated biologically, but there are subset diseases where we know, mm -hmm. okay, roughly, you know, this gene is messed up and therefore you get the disease, or that gene is messed up and therefore you get the disease. So for diseases like that, um, I do think there's a possibility that we'll, we'll see advances um, before, this is definitely a safe statement to make, we'll see, uh, <laughs> famous last words, um, I do think that, that we'll see advances in, in the simple diseases before we'll see advances in the, in the complicated diseases. I, I do think that's, that's the case. The other thing that uh, I was going to ask you, don't these current ways of working with genes allow you to alter the brain blood barrier at the brain level? In other words, isn't, isn't that part of the job to see how you can alter that barrier? Uh, so it kind of depends. Um, alter is a, is a, can be a scary word in, in the brain and, and I guess the best way to describe it is there, there's a reason why that blood-brain barrier is there. And so, for instance, um, let's say theoretically you said, okay, I want to deliver drugs to the brain. So we know that uh, there is a gene. So the blood vessels that line the brain all express this one particular gene uh, called VE cadherin. Uh, the VE cadherin basically takes the, the cells that line up the, the brain and it makes the cells stick together so that there's a tight junction and nothing can get in between the cells. So in theory, you know, you go in and inject an antibody uh, towards VE cadherin or direct an siRNA against VE cadherin and knock down that protein so that the cells become loosened up and now you could deliver your drug and it would get out. However, um, there are going to be side effects to that and, and they could be pretty dramatic side effects. And so um, I think manipulating the brain in order to get drugs to it um, is in, in theory a workable strategy been practice, I would, you know, if I had to put money on the table, I'd probably bet against it. Because it's, it's easier just... to modify the drugs so they will go <laughs> than the other way around. Yeah. I mean, so you, can, you can change the pharmacology of molecules so that they do go to the brain. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So and that is... Uh, yeah, and, and there's a lot of uh, utility in understanding some basic biology. So, you know, there's... Um, uh, there are certain... There are a very limited number, but there are a, a small number of pathways where you can actually these molecular pathways, the, the cells use these pathways to get things across the bloodstream into the brain because the brain does need to get stuff out of the bloodstream. So the body has ways to get certain things into the brain. And you can hijack some of these molecular pathways to get things across the brain. Um, now the efficacy is, is, um, can be limited, but there are a small number of, of pathways where you can exploit them to get things across. We get a lot of things to the brain, Yes, I would have to say one of the miracles of, of modern psychi or of psychiatry in the 20th, 20 to 21st century is that we actually were serendipitous 
exclusively able to find Prozac and haloperidol and lithium, yeah. which are now sort of like the, everything is a mainstay of that. But if we and they get across very well, and it's amazing because these actually change the practice of psychiatry. And if we did not have this, we would not be in the state we are now. Where it, so these definitely went across the board, and they're actually quite effective. So it's not as if this is, we're, de we're dealing with something that is 50 to 60% effective in most people. What we have, the main issue that we're sort of grappling with now is what do we do for the 40 to 50% of the people that don't respond to the third and fourth generation of Prozac or the third and fourth generation of lithium at this point. But you know, it is quite miraculous that we have these. You know. it, and it's also important to note here too that uh, when you think about uh, getting things across or across the blood-brain barrier into the brain, um, there's a size limitation. So the things that get across, tip, the things that cells can handle and sort of take across on their own are typically extremely small. Mm -hmm. So they might be on the order of uh, like a chemical, a mm -hmm. chemical, chemical compound that might weigh 500 Daltons or maybe 1,000 mm -hmm. Daltons at, at most. A lot of these biological drugs that we're talking about, these sort of next-generation drugs, if you put them inside a nanoparticle, People don't know how to weigh a nanoparticle, but I've heard estimates on the order of 20 million to 100 wow. million Daltons, wow. which is certainly a lot different than 500 Daltons. Mm -hmm. And so getting that delivery of these large biologics across um, is going to be a different... Uh, different ballgame. Well, what the technical hurdle of just getting RNA across? So RNA, ooh, that's a great question, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I love that, I love that, I love that question. I, yeah. I've been living, living with that question for yeah, years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, if you want to get RNA uh, out of the bloodstream into a tissue, uh, it helps if the tissue helps you out on its own. Yeah. So in the liver, there are certain blood vessels uh, so I'll take a step back and say that the blood vessels uh, uh, that are, you know, sort of line your liver are different than the blood vessels mm -hmm. that line your lung, and they're different from the ones that line your brain. Uh, and the blood vessels that line, like, an average uh, uh, artery in your heart, for instance, are different from the blood vessels that line a vein in your heart. So there's heterogeneity both across tissues and within the tissue. Um, and you can use that to your advantage. So... Um, there are wonderful delivery vehicles uh, for delivering small RNAs to hepatocytes in the liver. Uh, and one of the reasons why, allegedly, they work so well is because some of the blood vessels in the liver actually have little holes punched in them. So mm -hmm. the holes might be between, uh, you know, so imagine like, a, imagine like a garden hose with like a whole bunch of holes punched in it. And then you want to get stuff out of the garden hose. It's going to get out of the garden hose more so than a garden hose that doesn't have any holes in it, right? Um, and so those fenestra, or like little windows in the liver, help drugs get across. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, and, you know, besides that, to be honest, I mean, we don't really know. We don't really know. We know that we can use these physical barriers to our advantage. Um, but if we want to actively target something like the brain or the lung or something that doesn't have those physical advantages, then we have to get clever. And, uh, you know, it's hard to get clever. I was thinking as you were talking, the, the two of you, are, brain disorders are very different too. It's like cancers are different, although they're finding some similarities. And listening and, to him, yeah, I think <laughs> cancer is comparatively easy. Yeah, exactly, because not, not all brain disorders yeah. are equal. Yeah. And you have the, the, the package of disorders that have to do with depression and mania and mm. psychosis. And then you have the package that has to do with neurodegenerative disease, like mm. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other, the mm. other dementias. Um, 
and then the, the other more complex kinds of um, ALS kinds of things yeah. that have spinal connections. Yeah. There's, it's such a complex yeah. area to f try to figure out, A, can you just figure out, can you just explain what's happening, yeah. number one, which yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah. Number two, even if you can't explain, can you at least rejigger it somehow yeah. <laughs> to get some kind of different outcome than what the patient is experiencing? Um, and that's going to be complex because you've got these different combinations. Yes. Yeah, I think the biology is, m is so complex. But I would have to say, since I'm, I, I hope to be an optimist, is that, <laughs> is that as a society, we have figured out how to treat patients in a yes, completely yeah. different way, which is through psychotherapy, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is one of the most effective ways people have shown that whether it be psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, or mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral, they all seem to have an effect size that is sometimes larger than the drugs we use. And I think mm -hmm. this is something mm -hmm. we can take advantage of. I mean, we, which I think gets to the whole point that this is what we call targeted environment, right? You're actually using the environment. You're, you're trying to reprogram the brain by having a discussion with someone else. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying it beyond means. But the one example I'm going to give, and I apologize, this is an example from my lab, but so it's sort of biased. But so we've been studying um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and actually, as I, I actually see patients coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And actually, what I first of all I've noticed is they're all really young. <laughs> they're like they're twenty two to 24 mm -hmm. years old, they're young soldiers. And I, it really makes it, what, I've been working with them for about five, six years, and, yeah. and um, I realized that they're essentially adolescents. Mm -hmm. So that we essentially are sending our soldiers, our adolescents to war, because you don't send 30 year olds to war, you send 18 to 22 year olds. And what, we're, what my colleague, B.J. Casey, who was also at the Sackler Institute, we're in, we're very, we were very much trying to tailor treatments at different stages of development. And we recently have made a fairly significant, we think, well, not, not like New York Times significant, but just like, <laughs> like <laughs> lab significant uh, advance in the sense that we find that if we do different types of what we call exposure-based treatments in both humans and in our mice that we study, that we actually get different, w different levels of of attenuation of memories. So in many ways, you can imagine, as I was discussing before, that, that the brain is really developing during different stages. And we've noticed now that adolescence, in particular, is very plastic. It, you're much more plastic during, you're actually much smarter than you are at other points in development. And we think that we can possibly tailor new types of behavioral treatments, which are not, whatever, don't involve blood-brain barrier and everything. So you can imagine another Another form of precision medicine mm -hmm. is actually trying to target the right time when your brain is ready. It's very similar to the way p uh, we've been very much informed by the work of like decades ago. There was the Nobel Prize was given for what they call critical periods of, of visual plasticity. That, that if you have someone that has doesn't have perfect aligned vision, you had a window of about five years before where you had to actually close one eye and let the other eye get stronger. And basically, and if you miss that window, you could not do things. And we think that in, in psychiatric disorders, at least in the simple realm of something like fear learning or fear 
post-traumatic stress disorder, you might be able to find a window where you can actually alter memories or alter the emotional valence of memories because the brain is much more plastic. Again, this is just like the tip of the iceberg, but then you could imagine if you could bootstrap this that ultimately you could possibly then add a drug on top of it. So right now we're doing a clinical trial with these veterans where in addition to giving them exposure therapy, we're actually giving them a cognitive enhancer. It's not a very good one, I can say that, but, it, but you can imagine the future, in the future of psychiatry might be where you combine what is probably the most effective treatment where you actually get, because not only the psychotherapy is not just what happens in the, if you think about it, in, for a patient to be in psychotherapy or see a, a psychiatrist or psychologist, they actually have to get out of their room and travel somewhere. <laughs> so there's something about that whole movement which we think is much more important that they're re-engaged with the environment in some way. And that you could imagine in the future, it'll be this combination of using potentially drugs, RNA, or other biologics, and also, but combining with psychotherapy. I think we're now at a point where we're realizing that one drug won't do it or one therapy won't do it. So I think that's, I mean, that's sort of the, the future, I think. You, you've touched, you haven't, you haven't gotten there, but the logical discussion that's going on in the ethics yeah. literature is, oh. so where, so when you, when, if, if and when we get to the point where um, you can fix PTSD, yeah. and societies have always sent young boys to war, that's not new, it's always been young boys, um, by, by draft, <laughs> in most in most historical moments, you didn't have a choice. Um, the logical extension is well, if you can fix the brain after this horrific yeah. trauma, and maybe even erase those horrible memories, which you know there are some drugs that are being yes, discussed exactly. about that. Yeah. Then what is what are the societal implications for that for nation states and wars and so on? If we can, and even if you could gene edit something later on to erase bad memories about killing. Um, and bad memories of trauma, do we then have a societal, are there societal implications for the use of those therapeutics and the use of those techniques for yes. reasons that may be nefarious and not necessarily what we would like to talk about? Yes, no, no it, the brain is actually quite, no, I think it's a very good point. I think the best way, the best anecdote I had heard about this is from Joe Ledoux, who's a, a, a neuroscientist at New York University. If you see a car crash outside, you have a memory of it. You go home, and within six hours, for some reason it has to be six hours, but within six hours, if you then watch a TV news of, uh, episode of it, and it's slightly different and you will update that memory, and the memory will be more like the newscast than your eyewitness account of it. And so this is what they call updating your memory. So this, I think, is what you're saying about this is actually quite dangerous, which means that memories are not as fixed and as uh, solid as we think, and it can, it's always amenable to updating, or in, in many, some cases, potentially erasure, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, mm -hmm. so that you can update, or and this is how I think this is the danger that you could imagine that you there are various forms of treatments that could actually lead to significant updating in a different way than it was. We of course want to think of it in a therapeutic way that we're going to try to update it and make previously bad memories lose their emotional or fearful valence, but you can imagine they could go the other way. The best example I have of this is I was talking to a general um, from when we were, we were doing a DOD study, the Department of Defense study, and when the soldiers first came off the field, and this has not been published, but he said that what they did anecdotally, they were 
and they know that they had been under a very traumatic experience, they gave all of them either Ambien or Clonopin. These are sort of tranquilizer drugs. And, but what all neuroscientists know is that sleep consolidates memories. So, so they looked temporarily calmer. They woke up and became more frightened because their memories had been acquired and consolidated. So you can imagine that, that, that especially when we put our, our, uh, our, our adolescent citizens into war situations, this is actually quite a dangerous situation because we could actually make things much worse. And my colleague also, I have a colleague, Richard Friedman, who um, is a psychiatrist but also writes for the New York Times. And what he mentioned is that he's noticed that the people, and he's written about this, so this is in the New York Times, that, that there's an incredibly high use of amphetamines because mm -hmm. when you're on, on in the field, you, you have to stay awake. And so then the, uh, but then this also consolidates and makes you remember things much better, just as anyone who's given a patient uh, Ritalin. This is essentially they're giving Ritalin to all their s the soldiers. And that ultimately your, me your fearful memories also get hyper-consolidated as a result of this. So again, we're, we are already doing things right now, manipulating mm -hmm. memories, even potentially inadvertently, even though the government doesn't really think they're doing it. And it was actually very hard for Richard to actually extract this information from the government, actually. It's They've been using amphetamines for a long time, at least since what? World War II. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In the military. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I don't, from a drug uh, discovery perspective, I don't think we're going to be in, in that uh, game. But, Good. Uh, yeah. But what I mean, about we're, we're looking at hemophilia and cystic fibrosis and... Yeah. That's kind of what we, we look at. Where does your field, does it intersect at all with the brain interface uh, in, in any way? Um, sure. I mean, we, we look at uh, trying to design drugs for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. I mean, my field specifically uh, asks a more simple question, which is can, we, full stop, can we get drugs into the brain, mm -hmm. genetic drugs into the brain? The underlying hypothesis is that the biologists and the geneticists are going to come up with genetic targets to treat disease X or disease Y or disease Z. The one thing that those diseases have in common is that no matter what gene you're going after, you have to deliver that genetic therapy. So that, that's where we live as we ask the simple question, which is, you know, can we use chemical engineering or nanotechnology or bioengineering to just get a genetic drug into the brain, period? And then, you know, if we succeed, then we say, okay, we're going to go after Parkinson's, mm -hmm. or if we get it to the lung, we're going to go after cystic fibrosis. So we do interface with, with neurologists and neuroscientists, but only in that context. Um, yeah. And when you talk about getting uh, tar targeted therapeutics to the brain, are you mm -hmm. talking through a pill or through a transfusion or through brain surgery or all three? Uh, so I, a pill would be great, but... Um, Ideally. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, but we're talking IV uh, infusion. Um, mm -hmm. Oral delivery is incredibly Pretty hard. hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of interesting uh, why it's hard. Um, IV administration is already hard enough. Because it goes through the liver, right? Yeah, well, IV just, it'll go through, it'll pump out everywhere, and then the liver tends to soak things up, as does mm -hmm. the spleen and kidney. But, um, but if you give something orally, um, if you have a hamburger 20 minutes before you take that pill or you don't, the entire environment in your gut, the receptors that are expressed, the bacteria that are, everything changes. So it's extremely hard 
to get something to get oral oral delivery. So I think you know the first genetic drugs that you'll see are likely to be either subcutaneous administration or intravenous administration. Well, so with Parkinson's, though, they're doing um, stem cell injections actually through surgery. Through so, so do you work with people who are thinking about going that route, or are you in a different kind of ballpark? Um, this is kind of a third rail for me right now because, <laughs> um, because I'm not a stem cell biologist, so I, I don't want to sip out on too much of a limb here. But I, I do have colleagues who work on stem cell mm-hmm. therapies. I think that some stem cell therapies will have the potential to be useful, others others will not. I can't speak to Parkinson's specifically. But, but would you but would you think would but would there be a potential drug that would that you might hmm. be able to discover that would only be able to be through a brain through brain surgery actual brain surgery. Oh, through yeah. injection so, directly into the brain. So this is one of the advantages to the new gene editing technology. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about distinguishing between like sort of traditional gene therapies and, and new new gene therapies. One of the advantages, to, in theory, and again, in theory, to these new gene therapies um, is that the effects are, to some extent, fairly permanent. Mm-hmm. So the analogy is that if you were to use an siRNA, which has a temporary effect, and you wanted to do something uh, in cardiomyocytes, you know, like right in the, or I will just stick in the brain. You want to do, you, you want to do it in the brain. Um, you know, if the effect of the drug lasts, like, if you're lucky and it lasts three months, you're not going to be able to go in and, and perform brain surgery every three months, right? So that, that's not really an option. Mm-hmm. However, if you have one of these new gene therapies where the effect is, again, in theory, pretty permanent, then uh, if you got the therapy to be effective enough, then you could do, you could say, okay, we're going to perform a brain surgery and just spray a ton of this stuff where we want it. And we know just because we're these new gene therapies are semi-permanent that the effects are going to last a really long time and uh, therefore you know we're going to look at this therapy now i don't know if people are looking into that but um i know that my colleagues and i uh, when we think about this say oh this is actually kind of interesting because it, it would open up like the pancreas or local administration to the heart in ways that we haven't thought about before simply because the effect in the right type of cells quiescent cells long-lasting cells is actually pretty so how would, you, how would you actually do this in human research? Because you can't go from the bench to the bedside without doing studies. And how would you actually study the long-term effects? What, what, would you, what kind of endpoints would you be looking for that would be reasonably acceptable risk? And yeah. over time, I mean, at least you can go back, if you give somebody an, some kind of a therapy with mm-hmm. a, the kidney or the heart or diabetes, you can go back and do follow-up mm-hmm. testing that's not... Sometimes it's invasive, but it may be minimally invasive. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're mm-hmm. doing gene editing, mm-hmm. yeah. So, therapy. and again, there are people, uh, both probably on this panel and then even in this room, that probably have more of an expertise in this than I do. But when I, when I think about this, and um, I, I try to think practically in the way that I would, I would consider doing something like this, I'd say, okay, well, what procedures are minimally invasive and mm-hmm. access that tissue already? In other words, are we going in already in a bunch of patients? Um, so if you're you know, putting a scope in and you're like in the mm-hmm. heart, as is, could you just spray some stuff in there while you're taking your pictures? Or if you're you know, doing a, a colonoscopy and you're already you know, in that area, can you just spray stuff in locally? And I imagine that, that would be a reasonable starting, starting point. But again, they're, they're, you know, that's really an answer for a practicing clinician because they would say, no, you idiot, like, you know, that, that isn't going to work. You know, it's better to, you know, this would be useful. I'm looking to the clinician mm-hmm. from cancer perspective. Cause 
you can follow up by looking at cells. So my only excursion into stem cells for Parkinson and uh, editing them uh, was from a cancer point of view and the, the idea of implanting basically precursors of neurons into yeah. the brain. Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous proposition mm -hmm. too because these cells do have plasticity in the wrong ways, mm -hmm. right? They can in fact form tumors and um, so with I think a lot of these the new technologies, whether it's genome editing or stem cells, you need to think of engineering um, a fail-safe switch. Exactly. What happens if these cells suddenly decide that now they'll form a tumor and uh, there are mm -hmm. studies on stem cells, they are just more likely to mm -hmm. cause mm -hmm. tumors. Mm -hmm. So you need to, to anticipate that and you need to be able to, to get rid of them. Uh, genetic ways of doing it and, and mm -hmm. I mean, we can do a lot of cool things genetically and we can eliminate them. Um, that's sort of my, my An point of view. Because yeah, basically, and ideally you'd want it in a way that, you know, let's say someone needs a new liver and you're able to grow it in the lab, right? Mm -hmm. And some population of these liver cells decide to become a liver mm -hmm. cancer. The patient still needs the rest of the liver, so you don't want to wipe out everything. You want to have a way that ideally selectively destroys these tumor cells, but perhaps leaves the, the rest of the liver intact. And even that you can, you can do. There are ways of, of uh, doing this. You know, these are suicide genes basically that kill specific cells under specific circumstances. These things are all technically possible. You can engineer cells before implanting them in a patient or an animal for, for the time being and um, have those cells perform specific functions and you can install fail-safe mechanisms to take them out when they misbehave in a way that you didn't want them. Okay. Questions? My name is Henry Earl. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. Uh, there's an area that perhaps ought to receive some attention uh, in this age of overpromise. How do we pay for the research? Uh, when Galileo <laughs> made his observations, it didn't cost a billion dollars the way it did to show that two black holes went, were in collision. So the cost of this kind of research has mounted exponentially. What about the cost for biomedical research? Uh, right now, I have friends who, when they hear the word socialism, they faint. But when I suggest that the NIH is funding research, they don't see that that's a form of socialism. Uh, where should the funding come from? Are we funding adequately? Do we need to fund it more? And are we overpromising? Well, of course, research is expensive. Um, new therapies are expensive too. Um, I think still in the context of the budget of the country, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket compared to yeah. military mm -hmm. spending, compared to this successful operation in Iraq a few years ago. 
the, the money that is spent on cancer or mm -hmm. psychological research is, is basically nothing in comparison. And I think it's ultimately more useful, um, even if 99% of it will never lead to clinical application. Yep. The few things that actually do work are immensely valuable. Um, okay. So if you are a government and you want to spend your money wisely, it's, it's probably one way to go. The related question, I, I mentioned that the new therapies are also expensive. So if you think about it, the controversy about drug expenses and so on. So there's a company that makes a new drug against hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. It's a pill. It's a pill. Right? You take it for a certain number of months, and they want $100,000 for it. Prevent right? is the new other, other drug for cancer. Prostate cancer, $30,000, yeah. three times a year. And you'd say that's insane. How is it possible? Um, and it's expensive. On the other hand, up to now, the same patient would need a liver transplant. It's going to cost $200,000, $400,000. Even, even in those extreme cases where a company is really trying to make a lot of profit on what is not even their own research, partially maybe. Um, even there, I think you still have a, a benefit. And, yeah. So Galileo yeah. and others were funded by the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> a fairly and they were, wealthy. And they were, patrons of, they were patrons of very wealthy people in, in um, yeah. those cultures. So as an educator and an enthusiastic skeptic, I, I absolutely agree. We, we, make yeah. prior, we make bad decision-making in this country. Yeah. We have our priorities all wrong. This is my own personal view. Um, and I come from... Uh, being trained and wanting to be an educator my whole life, and I think our priorities are wrong. Um, until recently, the National Institutes of Health was the largest funder of research that has now been surpassed by private sector, and um, mainly by venture capital firms, which um, many people here are familiar with, which sometimes the, the term venture capital sounds, to those who are socialistic inclined, bad, but um, I think it's a good thing that there's a mix, but there's a huge problem now with conflicts of interest in science. And so that's another whole ethical dimension about where the money's coming from. And if you know all the movies that you watch, you just follow the money. Um, there are lots of complex issues. Many people argue for public-private partnerships with, and I've come from a political science background, so I'm the person who always says, in the sunshine, in the sunshine, in the sunshine. Transparency, accountability, good governance with public participation. That's my fantasy as a non-scientist <laughs> where I would like to get. Yeah, um, and addressing your, your early point, I'd like just to, to sort of reemphasize things here, which is that um, first, um, it may seem like the NIH budget is, is very large, but um, it's not. it is not. And I can say for a fact that many of the colleagues uh, that have grown up in sort of my scientific generation um, who would make incredible professors, incredible researchers. I'd say, I won't put an exact number, many of them, more than 50%, well more than 50%, do not go into academic science because there is no research money. Mm -hmm. And that is the exact reason why. Um, I know that when I was considering taking a faculty job, there were other jobs that were on the table as well. And I have always wanted to be a professor. I think teaching students is incredible. I'm proud of the students I've taught so far. It's the greatest joy in my life. And yet, I almost uh, took a different type of position because the grants are so hard to get. That is the reason why I almost didn't go in. And it's the reason why everybody in my generation, if they do not go in, 
that's the reason why they don't go in. Um, the other thing I think is a really important point to, to understand is that um, it's really hard, I would say it is impossible to predict what is going to be useful down the line. So today, we've discussed a lot about this new technology called uh, these gene editing technologies. And right now, the most um, easy to use gene editing technology is called CRISPR-Cas9. And right now, I mean, everybody knows about CRISPR-Cas9 in the biological field. It's considered the, arguably the biggest biotechnology discovery in 40 years, totally changing the world. And that was originally discovered by a bunch of bacteriologists sequencing some random repeats in an unknown bacteria and saying, oh, that's weird, these things look the same. Now, if you put that grant in, that 1980s grant, into the NIH system right now, that doesn't get funded. And 30 years down the line, we don't have CRISPR-Cas9. And that's the huge risk that we're facing right now, is that there's all these incredible transformational, potentially transformational technologies 30 years, 40 years down the line, that we're not stumbling onto, because that's how science works. So I think it's really important to support an increase in NIH funding. You guys can believe me or not, obviously I'm, I'm sort of biased in that because this is uh, important to me. But I think there's ample evidence to support the fact that, that these discoveries are hard to make and there are many people who want to do a great job who just are leaving the field right now because there's no money. But it's not just NIH funding because let's state, right. so NIH is federal funding, so yes, yeah. our federal dollars pay for research, but state funding for research and education has been decimated. Yep. In my lifetime, I started as an academic teaching in 1989, or, no, 1985, and it was being decimated and it's continued. Science programs that were at public schools, you're at a private school, but Georgia, Georgia Tech gets public funding, yep. um, have been cut dramatically. I wanted to ask a question. Um, I studied computer science and not biotechnology. So when I look at something like, you know, the RNA, you know, delivery of, you know, whether it's transmission or messaging, I think in sort of a computer model where, you know, we might send something within a system and rather than waiting for it to eventually succeed or break down, we immediately see a, an acknowledgement, like we would see, um, you know, like an ACK or an ACK. It would say right away, send back this message, and you say, yes, it's succeeded, it's failed. And I've never heard of anything like that within sort of the study of medicine where, um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, is there, it's more like eventually you see a cancer marker or you see a disorder in the blood or this thing happens and it's measured maybe through a blood test. But I wondered, I don't know enough about it to know, is there something that you can immediately see that is this sort of feedback within the system loop? So um, it's, you know, it's a difficult question to say yes or no to. I, I will point you to um, a field you may like reading about uh, just for fun. Uh, it's called synthetic biology. It's a new field, very experimental right now. But actually, uh, that sits right at the interface of basically computer scientists like yourself and bioengineers. And um, there are many uh, universities now that actually have faculty members whose research are, are sort of dedicated to, to living right at that interface. And it's really funny, you'll see a, a biological paper published and they'll put in diagrams that have resistors and transistors and the equivalent of that stuff in, in, in the circuitry of the cell. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know the field well enough to say yes or no that has or hasn't happened yet, but uh, it may have, and if so, I would say synthetic biology is a likely place to, to find that. I think you sort of asked about immediate readouts of whether 
you know, you, you, your message arrives and whether you get an effect through it is, sorry. Um, and I, I think so in drug studies, certainly that's something that you need to be able to measure immediately. You give a new drug and you want to be able to know the drug hit the target and, and how effectively and for how long it suppresses that. So that's certainly part of any medical, any, any drug study that you want where you have a, a, call it a biomarker, just something that says it got there and it did what it's supposed to do. I have a question about the field of optogenetics and channel redopsins and also the delivery. How do they get it into the specific parts of the brain? I've read a lot about it. I'm confused about that part. And also the ethical implications of turning on and off neurons in particular parts of the brain using channel redopsins. Um, well, I'll quickly address the delivery part and then I'll let the experts okay. handle the this, the meteor part of the question. Um, luckily, the answer is pretty simple. As far as I understand it, no black magic here. They basically say, okay, we're going to um, take a virus that encodes the optogenetic, whatever channel rhodopsin you would like, and they spray it in where they want to spray it in. They might use a cell type specific promoter to make sure it's only expressed in neurons as opposed to glia. But um, yeah, they basically just, and then, you know, you're good. But I think, interesting enough, mainly because there's a technical glitch. Almost all optogenetics now is in rats and mice, because all the promoters have been done. There seems to be a technical glitch of getting to primates, so that there is not that much of a, the, the ultimate use of optogenetics in humans is probably not going to be, the reason why optogenetics is so powerful up until now is because we had these very powerful promoter-specific expressions, so you could go right to one type of dopamine neuron, for example, and turn it on. And in the monkey, you cannot do it. So all the experiments so far in monkey and 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 you can tell you can tell from science, scientists are not stupid. So you, if you see how many people are going towards trying to translate this to human optogenetics, it seems to be very low. It seems to be something that not, is not something, because you have to actually put a fiber optic cable. It's very complicated. Um, I think in the future, I, there's another type of technology which is still in its sort of nascence. It's now being developed at, at many places, but in particular at Rockefeller University, where instead of putting a virus that gets turned on by light, but will get turned on by a magnetic beam. So that is something that is possible, at least in terms of, of, of de developing better and stronger ways of turning on magnetic fields within a darkened chamber like the brain. And I think that's an area. What they have definitely been able to do is, is turn on a magnetic beam on the pancreas and get it to secrete insulin so that they can definitely do something like that. So I think that will probably be something that will, people would much rather have a, mag, a magnet put on your abdomen than a, than a fiber optic cable. So I, think, yeah. <laughs> so I think that will probably be the 10, five, 10 years from now. But the ethical concerns of optogenetics for primate human and non-human are probably not that not critical because <laughs> the technical difficulties yeah. are a little bit too great right now and and you can't get funding for it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are some questions that have come up about um, controlling the brain, though, in some other technologies, so deep brain stimulation and mm. neuroenhancement. Mm. Not, not drug neuroenhancement, but um, mechanisms, the... the Electrodes and so on. It's a whole free will, right? Well, what well there's, when there's, there's two issues. Free, well, there's more than two issues, right. but free will is one. But another one is what if I um, like what happens to me when I have deep brain stimulation or I'm using a neuroenhancer and I can figure out how to do it and jigger with it on my own? And the clinician 
does not want to go there for a variety of reasons. And there have been some discussions in the ethical field about the rights of the patient to be able to say either stop this, which we, in medical ethics, we basically acknowledge the patient's right to say, I don't want chemotherapy, I don't want the heart surgery, whatever, I don't want a, a brain interface. But the flip side is, I really like this. I like being manic. Yeah. And there's some literature on this now, and I like what this has done to me, and I don't want to come down from whatever the particular brain, um, not drugs, we're talking about other kinds of interventions, um, although we could be talking about drugs, but it, it, this is in the non-drug field. So it does raise some interesting questions about um, individual control. And then if people have control over what's happening in terms of computers um, and chips, and then the data that comes from that information and who has access to that data is another whole realm. I think the only, the only comment I have is, uh analgesia, right? So uh, there were, and maybe there's still there, pain control where patients can control the, their own medication mm -hmm. and, and basically give themselves opiates, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, I think the conclusion of that research was that they, they actually administer less than if it is given by, by the doctors and the nurses. Mm -hmm. So if you self-control, you actually do less than, uh, for, for better or worse. <laughs> it's actually a surprising. Mm -hmm. surprising. Yeah. Anyone else? When you mentioned that we knew all there was to know about Huntington, you know, identifying it, um, but we didn't know how to control or to take, make dimensions, this is very uh, disturbing to me. Not what you said, but that um, <laughs> I think like, he said it's it, like not it's me. closing. <laughs> it's as though it's closing so much because. I think that I just heard of something, um, and it was about post-traumatic syndrome, and that other people have it, you know, we begin to realize under other circumstances, uh -huh. and it had a lot to do with mindfulness. Now, and this was people who were rather responsible, saying that, um, you know, just controlling your mind, and that gets into the psychoanalysis of it. But it seems that, how do you get support when you have some idea that's way out there? Then I have one more question, and it was, um, do, do you divide your field into dimensions? You know, this is, this is what is happening in the cell. This is what we can do to control that thing that's happening in the cell. I mean, are there all these steps that you, you know, do you go into dis different, dis I should know this, but do you go into different disciplines or aspects of your discipline? So I, there were kind of three questions. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great uh, set of questions. Um, so to your, to your first question about, about Huntington's, um, so I remain optimistic that we will be able to deliver to Huntington's and my lab works on new delivery technologies and there are many great labs across the US that also work on, on the delivery technologies. Um, I think historically science most of the time fails but a friend of mine says that it, you know, all your, failure, all your failures don't, don't matter. It's really your, the few wins that you get that actually make a difference, and I, I agree with that. So I, I wouldn't be dissuaded or feel pessimistic. Yeah. Oh, well, you, who's, who's doing more basic? Uh, yes. yeah. oh. Oh, oh, by the way, you're absolutely correct. 
we yeah. don't know what the protein Huntington actually does. Yep. We really still don't understand that. Yeah. So, so and I, I should have been more clear earlier. What I meant is from a therapeutic perspective, we know the sequence to go after. Yeah. And that is an important distinction. I didn't make that clearly, so that's my fault. Um, to your second question, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, answer that quickly. In my lab, we do uh, think about things in different layers. And we purposefully try to position ourselves at interfaces of, of new technology or different fields, and that's how we try to thrive. So we try to use genomics uh, and genetics and really big data sets um, to make our chemical engineering systems better. That's how we try to distinguish ourselves. So in our, in our lab, we do purposefully subdivide things and then right, look uh, right where that interface is. very professional conversation and I have a lot of questions but I would like to ask um, about simple techniques not like genetic interventions for example a couple of years ago I um, on routine tests I it was I got really bad results on very routine test and I of course, I st straight was sent to more invasive tests, and I was scared to death that I should do this. Instead of this, I start to read, and there are a lot of information right now, a lot of research um, that could some uh, got somewhere, but then lo uh, lost funding. And in my case, it was actually I should just change diet. I just stop, uh, stopped uh, drink what I liked. I liked very much soy milk. That was it. In couple of months, my test was okay. Everybody, everybody were amazed. It was, it was not possible from their point of view. So why we cannot, yes, uh, maybe really test uh, more people and give them these some kind of connection that probably some something in your environment in your diet could cause it why don't don't try it for example there are some research that um, psychological problems could be caused by um, uh, our gut uh, microflora and just probiotics could change uh, our, uh, how our brain functions. Or the, uh, there are some research that fish oil could um, really improve uh, a lot of brain functions. Um, Why we don't make these simple connections without go to invasive tests and yes. Uh, very expensive yeah. treatments. Because I think there are a lot of great doctors out there who, who probably make a lot of those connections and yeah. can probably help you. And I'm glad that you got better by changing the diet. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's, first of all, you, I, I completely agree, there are smarter doctors. But then also at Cornell, I just realized this also, we, we hired, we, we have a new microbiome project. And I didn't realize that 
our entire gut flora, all our bacteria, weighs more than our brain. The amount, that, it's like five or six pounds of bacteria inside our, our body. So it's not so simple. It's not one bacteria, and it's, the genome of the bacteria is 30 to 40 times more complex than the genome we have ourselves. So that you can imagine, it's, it, it looks like on the surface, like it's simple. It's actually much more complex, because then you're, it's almost like, we were studying a lake, and that's an ocean. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyone okay. else? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.